coming up on Philosophy Talk. Space? Time? Space-time? I think I can safely say that uh, nobody understands quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics, the world's most successful and baffling scientific theory. I'm going to tell you what nature behaves like, and if you will simply admit that maybe she does behave like this, you will find her a delightful, entrancing thing. What picture of the world does quantum mechanics give us? Wave or particle? Nature? Make up your mind. We might consider Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger. Is that the woman in 2A? No, that's Mrs. Grossinger. And she doesn't have a cat. She has a Mexican hairless, annoying little animal. Yep, you shall then. Our guest is Janan Ismail from the University of Arizona. Time, space, and quantum mechanics. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. And we're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, the metaphysical mysteries of time, space, and quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics was developed in the last century to deal with the tiniest parts of nature. It seemed that classical physics, which was able to describe everything from the movement of stars to the movements of grains of sand, wasn't enough. A whole new theory was needed. And it's a whole new theory that's a special theory. I mean, we owe a lot to quantum mechanics. Modern bombs and modern computers, for example. It's been called the most empirically powerful and accurate theory ever developed. But quantum theory has been a pain, or at any rate a challenge, for philosophers since it began. In the first place, the quanta turn out to be neither particles, which we can imagine, or waves, which we can imagine, but something that shares the properties of both in a way that's impossible to picture. And what's even more worrisome is the strange role of the observer in quantum mechanics. The idea seems to be that quantum systems move along from quantum state to quantum state in a perfectly predictable and unproblematic way until you put the observer in the picture. But these quantum states seem to be just probabilities about what's happening. As soon as there is an observer, things have to resolve themselves one way or another. And this seems not to be determined by the quantum state. So you use uh, Schrodinger's famous cat example. You put a cat in a box with a bottle of gas rigged up so that if a particle ends up in one place, the gas will be released and the cat, the poor cat, will die. But if it doesn't end up in that place but someplace else, the cat's going to be okay. Quantum theory tells us exactly what the probabilities are, but not what actually happens. When someone opens the box and looks in, the cat's got to be either alive or dead. Somehow the observer forces the world to make up its mind in a way that the laws of quantum physics don't. Well, you know, some physicists and some philosophers say that what happens is that the world splits with the cat living in some worlds and not in others, matching the probability. So if there's a 50-50 chance in half the worlds it lives and half the world it dies. Ken, that's really weird. Absolutely weird, John. But you know what? That's an old problem. That's an old mystery. Over the last 25 years or so, attention has focused on yet another quantum mystery, entanglement. And what some physicists say about entanglement, you know, it makes my head spin. 
It makes us philosophers feel like we've been kicked back inside Plato's cave, that the familiar world, the one spread out in space and changing over time, is just an illusion. Well, here's how I understand it, which, is, of course, is barely. But suppose you and I, Ken, are particles. We're generated by some subatomic process. We fly off in opposite directions at close to the speed of light. After a while, we each raise exactly one of our hands. We do so simultaneously relative to an observer at the place where we began. So it seems like, if you just think about it, there should be like a 50-50 chance that we'll raise opposite hands or the same hands. But look, it turns out that we raise the opposite hand not 50% of the time, but three-quarters of the time. Somehow, despite the fact that we're traveling at close to the speed of light, what one of us does depends on what the other does. Our states are, as they say, entangled, even if after a few minutes we're thousands or even millions of miles apart. But here's the mystery. How? It, it can't be that we're influencing other by, say, sending signals, because no signal could go faster than the speed of light. So it couldn't get from me to you or you to me in time to help us coordinate our actions. It seems like this better-than-chance correlation is some kind of miracle. But quantum physicists don't believe in miracles, and they know that this is how the universe actually works. And even they are finding it hard to explain. So what are we poor philosophers to do? Some of their attempts at explaining it are really upsetting. Our guest, Janan Ismail, uses the analogy of living inside a kaleidoscope to explain a leading idea. So either we're living in Plato's cave or uh, Ismail's uh, kaleidoscope, seeing shadows or mirror images with no way of knowing what the true relations between the causes of those images are. That's depressing. Janan Ismail, who will be joining us in a minute, is a philosopher of physics from the University of Arizona. She's the author of Essays on Symmetry and the Situated Self. As far as we can tell, she's coming to us from a studio in Tucson, but maybe along some other dimension, she's sitting with us here in San Francisco. Or maybe we're in Arizona, too. Well, no matter what dimension you find yourself in, we want you to be part of this conversation. But first, we're going to hear from our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch. She explores the uses and misuses of quantum physics in film and television. She files this report. There's a scene in the television series Fringe, it's the last episode of the first season, where a portal opens to an alternate universe and one of the characters slips through. You're saying that William Bell disappeared into a different universe, like Dorothy going to Oz. Well, Walter calls it an alternate reality. Do you understand? Not remotely. You're saying that William Bell is not on this planet. No, he is just another version of this planet. Sounds like the work of science fiction, right? But according to the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, there are actually an infinite number of universes all around us with infinite possibilities. Odd as it may seem, it's a solution to a problem. Chad Orzel is a professor at Union College in Schenectady, New York, and the author of How to Teach Physics to Your Dog. He says the rules of quantum physics allow us to predict what will happen in the future. What those rules say is that objects can be in more than one place at the same time, for example. And the reason we don't see an electron being in more than one place at the same time is that it continues to be in multiple places, but the universe sort of splits. We effectively have a universe in which the electron is here and we see it here, and a universe in which the electron is there and we see it there. This is great material for screenwriters. Space, a final frontier. In this episode from the original Star Trek series, an ion storm causes Captain Kirk and his crew to switch places with their doubles in a parallel universe. Only their doubles are evil. 
Captain Kirk realizes this when a bearded alternate version of Mr. Spock tortures a subordinate. Mr. Kyle, you were instructed to compensate during the Ion Storm. But I tried, Mr. Spock, I tried. But the equipment cannot be tolerated. But Mr. Spock, I tried. Ionizer. No, Mr. Spock. Your agonizer, please. No, Mr. Spock. The interesting thing about that is if you take this sort of theory seriously, there has to be that kind of universe out there. There has to be a, a universe out there where everything is the opposite of, of what we have here. And that raises the question, how close are we to our alternate selves? The Star Trek treatment of it is ultimately a little bit silly, but as an idea, that's something interesting that's out there, that if you're kind to animals, you nevertheless know that there should be some universe out there in which you regularly kick puppies. While shows like Fringe and Star Trek raise interesting ideas, the scientific implausibility of colliding universes bothers Orzel. It's a, a, a failing in shows like Fringe is that the world in the other universe is really radically different. And yet, you have the alternate versions of the characters from our universe um, have the same jobs, and their parents are the same people, and they live in the same unrealistic New York City, two large apartments. One small change in the past would lead to bigger and bigger consequences. The best example of this idea, according to Orzel, doesn't come from science fiction. It comes from the 1946 Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. You've got your wish. You've never been born. You don't exist. They work out in detail the effects of changing one thing in the past. And you know, it's not treated as a parallel universe that exists. It's just something that's shown to one of the characters. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. In the film, we see that one man's existence impacts everything from the name of the town to the death of a brother. And even though it's total fantasy, it might just be realistic. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.